0: do you want want me to do it this evening are you are you ready
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 go ahead in your own time as long as it's this evening
0: unanswered um so i don't know if you uh i I, well I, i do know that you remember for definite do you remember the show that's life of course i do yeah for um it bears reminding ourselves a little bit of what it was like it was in the late 1970s early 80s i remember it being a thing my parents watched rather than a thing that i watched necessarily Mm -hmm. and it seemed relatively benign uh, thinking back it might have been a little bit racist, and it li- might have been a little bit middle class and uh, and normative i don 't know <laughs> but um, what it was it was like a magazine show and and to start with it was it kind of started out as a mainly a consumer show, you know speaking up for the people the the people with a capital p. Um, looking at businesses and organisations that were doing things that weren't good for the customers. I don't know if it was the beginnings of allowing the man on the street a voice. Hmm. People would write in letters. They would read them out in funny voices and stuff like that, you know, complaining about stuff. They would have probably existed around the same time as points of view. Oh, blimey.
1: At a points of view, I could probably do a little Wikipedia on. But um, at a points of view, is kind of like the, the, the feedback element of the BBC TV. So I think it's always been there in some shape or form. So I'm pretty sure points of view has run a lot longer than that's life, but they certainly would have existed at the same time yeah. as well.
0: The uh, mechanism of getting actors to read out the voices of the people who'd written in yeah. was kind of very similar. But the the point of view is the BBC, and this is to the BBC's credit, I guess it was the BBC inviting the public to uh, discuss the BBC's output, and they put out just as many kind of negative comments as they did positive comments and stuff like that. Uh, Whereas um, That's Life was, I believe, the BBC, yeah, it was definitely the BBC, inviting the public to complain about everything else. (laughs) And um, in one way or another, I realised when I was reading up about this earlier today, it's kind of become the model for something like 70% of the worst of Certainly British TV now is very similar to the one show, things like Kilroy and all of the different consumer watch shows, all of the different shows which are, are trying to shame builders and stuff like that. You can see the roots to all of those in, in That's Life, really. It was supposed to be giving the common man a voice, but importantly at that point, the voice was still the voice of properly trained middle class and upper middle class uh, British actors. Probably rather. It was giving the British public a voice without actually letting them on TV, for the most part. But they did do Vox Pops, but, you know, that, that came later. But, yeah, a lot of our TV now kind of started from that sort of thing. I think people generally at the time thought of it as quite a good thing, because, you know, they were really giving it to the man. The two things that really came out of it that I never quite understood as a kid and have started to really bother me more recently, I've never understood the Traffic Warden thing. And I don't think this is necessarily a thing in other countries quite so much. But I've never understood why, of all of the different jobs and all of the different authority figures in this country, it seems all right to say anything you want about traffic wardens. They are so reviled, you can talk about them dying or losing losing their jobs or dying or whatever, and somehow it's okay. It has felt kind of like we're at a point now where we will make jokes about anything as a culture. There are some of us that will make jokes about anything and kind of pat ourselves on the back for being so open about what we can laugh about. And that sounds really cynical, but I'm kind of including myself in that a little bit. But there have been points where it seems like, and maybe this has even happened, if a traffic warden got beaten up or beaten to death by a disgruntled customer there'd be jokes as if it was almost all right that it had happened it's literally like those guys are the lowest of the low and to people who don't necessarily know what they are because there might be people who don't know what they are they're just the people who go around enforcing parking regulations (laughs) that's literally what they do i don't know how you feel about traffic wardens
1: yeah, I think, I think I'm on, a, on the same page with you, really. There's a few years between us, but we both grew up in an era where traffic wardens were a pretty easy target in terms of mm. comedy, TV comedy, and also the general complaint of the average man, you know, that they were a figure of authority at the lowest level. They had a modicum of power. It wasn't anything as significant or as respected, in inverted commas, as mm. uh, the police, for example, or even the army. They were even beneath politicians in terms of the contempt that people would have for them.
0: Specifically the politicians who came up with the parking regs that they were enforcing in the first place.
1: Ultimately the politicians or the councillors or or the representatives in local councils, whoever, who kind of have that influence can remain faceless. Where it's the traffic wardens who are the embodiment of parking regulations of where exactly a tyre falls on a double yellow line to cause a problem in a parking ticket... Yeah, I think people just don't like the fact that that they're essentially civilians with the tiniest bit of power. It sort of rubs them up the wrong way, but um, they're doing their job. And if you can't read the signs uh, or don't understand where you can and can't park, that's sort of on your head. And if a ticket ends up on the windscreen, it's not really the traffic warden's fault. They're doing their job. I've never had a problem with them if i found myself with a with a parking ticket or i was dashing back to a car that was just one or two minutes over the ticket and someone was about to put it on there and they then put it on there well that's just my bad luck i should have got there 2 minutes earlier
0: you should i don't know why you always leave it so late to be honest I think, why? why don't you just leave with plenty of time to get back
1: oh but it was only a minute
0: <laughs> in the in the 1980s arguably they were the worst of the worst and, and actually looking back worse than galtieri yeah, certainly worse than paedophiles, but that's which apparently was all okay. Uh
1: but we didn't know they were paedophiles then, that's the thing. Retroactively they were probably worse. But at the time they probably didn't even exist. They were just uncles.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just uncles. <laughs> they weren't paedophiles. They were just uncles. Uh, but yeah, and the thing that that's life the term I think that they coined, which has just kind of become part of the national Uh, lexicon mainly for people like traffic wardens but also for the people that they got in touch with at corporations who were like defending rules and stuff that people had complained about was the term jobsworth i don't know if there's an equivalent in other places outside of this country it seems like a really british term
1: well according to wikipedia it
0: is yeah but i guess other countries probably do have the behavior or they identify the behavior yeah, but they just don't call it the same thing because they didn't have Esther Anton on That's Life to, to to point the way on this one. But that's Esther Anton. She's basically always getting in people's shit. And the jobs worth thing's kind of been nestling in the back of my head, and I've never used it. It's it's one of those terms and behaviours that I'd feel very uncomfortable about identifying. And then my first job, I think, I worked in a supermarket, and I worked in cafes. And those are all very customer service oriented places where sometimes customers can be real jerks yeah. and you just kind of have to put up with it. And then I worked doing data entry for a place that it's a government agency. It's like an Inland Revenue Agency mm-hmm. where there were very rigid rules for dealing with anything. There wasn't any customer facing stuff there, but there were very rigid rules for dealing with everything. And they all made sense in terms of keeping data intact. So even this was in the early 90s, but it was like my first job, really drummed home to me that keeping data intact was quite important, that data being organised in a way that you could get at was quite important, and that there being a consistency was important. So there are rules there that kind of make sense, that don't necessarily make sense outside of that environment. So there's this theme going on, and then I worked in retail for a while, and now I work for a university, and we're constantly working with compute systems, we're telling people about things, we're constantly being told, well, that's stupid, why does it work like? That and then we have to explain to them that actually the, these are the reasons why it's good that it works like that, etc. As far as I know, nobody's ever said that I was a job's worth, but one thing that I've been very conscious of throughout is that sometimes you're doing things in your job that actually make sense within the context of your job that it would take a long time that, like, someone who was coming in there might not be able to make sense of, and some of those things don't make sense and some of them do. Like anyone who's worked anywhere has known there have been rules that you've had to follow that don't make sense and there have been rules that you've had to follow that actually do make sense if you think about them. And, you know, and if you're customer facing at all, you're going to have had to defend rules that didn't make sense and you're going to have had to defend rules that did. And you're not going to have had much agency. But the thing that I've noticed recently that has been winding me up, which is why I've brought up this whole worth idea, even if the term isn't used that much anymore, is the speed with which people in our culture at the moment, especially on the internet, but not only in the internet, are happy to criticise people doing a job without for a minute trying to work out why those people might be doing their job in that particular way is incredible. You know, you're unhappy with something an organisation's doing, and the member of staff who is telling you, but that is the way this organisation does things, sorry, that's the way it is. Suddenly you're quite happy, not you, Steve, I don't think I've ever heard you do it, but suddenly people are quite happy to complain about the way that individual is handling things. I'm, I've probably not made a particularly strong case. So there's an example that came up just recently. Um, I was on Twitter the other day, you know, I've got a timeshare there. Um, there was somebody retweeted something about a unilever advert now this was a poster there wasn't there wasn't anything indicating where the advert had gone up it was just being shared around with a south african ad agency has knocked this up for unilever and it was for flora butter
1: oh i've seen this
0: yes it was homophobic but not in a hate crimey way it was homophobic in a really retro archaic sort of ridiculous anachronistic way it was a picture of a heart, like a, an organic-looking heart where with valves and everything, but made out of China, with a little bullet in the shape of, well, a little, some words in the shape of a bullet saying, Dad, I'm gay. And there was a little thing at the bottom that said, for the hardest days in your life or something, and the suggestion was, being told your son was gay would break a father's heart. Now that is a pretty gross advert. I actually think it's possible to see how the ad agency might have thought it was funnier than it was because it wasn't really funny.
1: You'd think an agency would think of that.
0: The the thing that I thought was quite telling about this was a. It wasn't an advert that anyone had spotted anywhere. It was very unclear where this had come from.
1: It may have even been speculative. It might not have even been commissioned.
0: Yeah, and it was specifically a South African ad agency. Now I. Don't honestly know what the cultural or political situation is in South Africa at the moment. And I'm not saying it's okay because we live in a situation where anything can be seen anywhere pretty much unless it's in North Korea or... But like certain national boundaries don't really mean anything uh, that much in terms of what's appropriate and what can be seen anywhere mm. and corporations that operate in lots of different areas are going to have problems with that but i could see how a south african ad agency trying to come up with an advert for a south african market where on certain subjects they might be like a couple of decades behind us because we're really enlightened about gay rights and stuff like that here obviously but over there you know maybe it's different maybe it still would be considered this awful thing that you could well you know even here you could probably make that comment that it might be an awful thing to hear but you'd know that actually that suggests that it is an awful thing to hear when actually really it, it isn't or it shouldn't be so yeah we don't know anything about this advert at this point i think it had gone up on one of those horrible websites that people always link to that have all of the different lists advertised at the bottom and you click on it and it takes you to a website that's a bunch of links to other websites and um, apparently it had been posted on there a couple of of days before but people only really started complaining about it on twitter about 20 about 10 minutes 20 minutes before the tweet i saw there was the tweet that was complaining about it saying well not complaining about it but saying and you know it caveated it if this is real uh, unilever should be ashamed of themselves adding unilever which is fine. I think that's fair use of the at symbol. And then there were a few responses, a few people, typically one person saying, well, I'd totally be boycotting Flora, except that Flora tastes like toilet. You could almost write that tweet from a template in any sort of outrage situation. Anyway, I would boycott this if the service wasn't already shit. But the one I really responded to was one person was saying, and a quick check suggested it was 30 minutes after this original tweet had been posted, Well, it's shocking. It's actually quite shocking that Unilever haven't said anything about this yet. (laughs) And I said, because I don't know why I still get involved in these conversations, which probably says something about my particular dysfunction. I just commented back and I was very polite about it and everything. You know what I'm like on Twitter. And I said, I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into that. Like, this has only been a thing, a controversy for 30 minutes. It's quite a big company. It might take a bit longer than that to get an official response. But there were a few responses coming back to me telling me I was wrong because the Unilever tweet, a Twitter account was tweeting about other stuff and hadn't said anything about this controversy they clearly were just ignoring it and well i think uh, and another person uh, and i saw response to that by saying well The guy manning the Twitter account, I was being normative, it could just as easily have been a girl, but the guy running the Twitter account probably isn't allowed to just weigh in on subjects like this the second he sees them. He's the guy who's paid to run the Twitter account. I'm guessing he doesn't have an awful lot of agency. And suddenly I had other people responding to me saying, well, that's ridiculous. Every company must have a public relations thing that says they'll deal with this stuff as soon as it happens. Basically complaining about the way that the Twitter account the way that Unilever, but also the way that the Twitter account was handling this, it kind of tied into this whole Jobsworth thing. But why aren't they doing their job this way? They should be doing their job this way. They should be caring about us, even though we've, we've already said we don't really buy their products or anything, so we're not really their customers. They should totally be responding to us now, because we have a gripe, and we're unhappy with the way they've done things, and why haven't they responded yet within 30 minutes of having noticed something that they were offended by? And when I see something like that, and, and it's always been the case whenever I've seen any of these jobs worth things, that any of these calls of jobs worth or, well, it's clearly this person's just a little Hitler or something. It's always made me kind of feel like the people talking have never had a job in their life. <laughs> They've always they've always been their own boss. Um, they've never had to answer to anyone else. They've always they've never had to send an email off to someone higher up the chain at work and wait till it gets back before they could do something. And that seems to me like it's been pretty much every job I've ever done has had an element of that in. I won't say I'm a maverick, but I'm not beyond trying to help people beyond the scope of my job and stuff like that. Sure. And I think a lot of people are kind of like that, but it it feels like either those people have never been in a job where they haven't had that sort of agency or they choose to forget the second they're dealing with someone else doing a job. What it strikes me as is, especially in the case of the homophobic advert, which incidentally, in approximately the amount of time it would take a bunch of emails to get up to someone who's actually allowed to make a decision and then get back in touch with the guy on the Twitter account, who you know, you know that people don't answer that guy's emails if they can possibly help it. He's the guy who runs the Twitter account. Who gives a shit about him? They're all off having these gigantic Unilever executive retreats and stuff like that, getting hand jobs and stuff. They don't give a shit. But yeah, and approximately the amount of time it would, you would expect it to take for him to eventually be able to get hold of someone who could give him a statement that he could actually use. Suddenly Unilever was decrying this advert and saying it was nothing to do with them and it was disgusting and everything. It was a bit of a shallow response, but it seemed to shut people up.
1: It was enough. That's the thing. Sometimes there's a lot of baying for contrition, you know, apologies and stuff like that. And it doesn't even have to be particularly heartfelt or genuine. What they just really want is to have that response. They, They crave, they demand a response, you know. Something has to be done. There must be a response. This can't stand unchallenged. And it may take a few hours, but, you know, a real boilerplate response of... This has nothing to do with us. Isn't really that satisfying, but it's a response. Sometimes that can be enough. You know, something that you could probably just sit back and predict would happen can be all that needs to happen. In which case, you know, just sit back and predict and then forget about the whole thing um, and stop wasting energy on stupid stuff.
0: At this point, you could be talking about me engaging with these people, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Because I knew that Unilever would end up saying something, you know. (laughs) I could have just watched it play out.
1: Yeah. And what you were trying to do was sort of help other people along (laughs) this process to sort of counsel them and, and, and say, I don't think it's bad as you think it is. The trouble is, if you catch them when they're at fever pitch, you sort of become their channel. You become their target until the next thing happens.
0: You're basically the the face of the corporation that you don't care about because you stood in the way and and that's, and I felt I felt that kind of happening. I'm like, you know, his job is basically to tweet out press releases and stay as on message as is humanly possible. Oh yeah, because that's that's what that job and a lot of other jobs, most jobs, are kind of like.
1: Yeah, it's not the it's not the CEO with a BlackBerry. You know, he's got other stuff to do. He's not going to be uh, ch- checking Twitter every 20 or 30 minutes, making sure to personally respond to everyone's concerns. It's not even going to be a social media executive. It is going to be someone doing a bit of the grunt work, not even necessarily writing these press releases, but it's just sort of managing this additional flow of information. You know, that wasn't really there like five years ago, especially 10 years ago, where there would have just been people opening letters or reading emails. So this is an extension of that. To expect them to be, yeah, to expect anybody who isn't directly responsible for the decision making to be able to give you all of the answers is a hell of a stretch
0: but one that people are happy to make
1: but they're the traffic wardens aren't they so they're the face they're the embodiment of whatever structure stands behind them and really, you're powerless to hit right at the centre of that structure and be heard. And so all you've got is this sort of futile exchange uh, where no one really wins. <laughs> Unless, of course, you can go off and have a whinge on Saturday or Sunday night primetime TV in the <laughs> 70s or 80s, in which case there might be just a little bit of relief waiting for you.
0: Why, why, why are you going to so homophobic? That, like, homophobia didn't really exist back in the 80s. I mean, it existed. It's just, it, we, we, it wasn't important. You know, nobody cared about it, really. Yeah, the thing that the thing that people should really remember is, most of the time, the person you're talking to has probably, like most of us, been working the same job for two or three years at least, doesn't really know how he got there, doesn't see any end in sight. If you're lucky, they're still trying to do a good job. But most people can't even still want to do a decent job after that much time with no agents i'm talking about myself again probably i don't know (laughs) um it just gets me and i guess i know what i was doing i was explaining i don't know a single thing about the people that i was responding to but it's the empathy failure that really gets me it feels Mm. to me like you can't really pick and choose with empathy you're either trying to make an effort to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're griping about or you're not there are certain things like if someone's got a swastika tattooed on their face you you probably don't need to make the real effort to see where they're coming from because it's on their face Yeah, it is. It's right there. And we're all kind of busy, and you don't have to love everyone. But if you're going to bare your teeth and go after someone, it might be worth trying to get a sense of what their day is like before you do it. That's one thing that it's still, after all these years of, you know, I no longer go onto forums and do the XKCD thing of feeling like anything that someone says that I don't agree with, I have to fix. But when... I see that sort of an empathy fail. I can't help getting involved a little bit. It's stupid. I really need to grow out of that. I don't have the time or the energy. Who does, really? I mean, who does? Seriously. (laughs) Well, no, no, exactly. Apparently, we all find the time or a lot of us do. But, you know, I'm 40 and I don't look after myself. I don't have all this much time to waste.
1: Think I mean, think about it in terms of that's life. It required an extraordinary amount of effort and patience in order for your grievance to be heard. You had to feel motivated enough to get a piece of paper, a pen, an envelope and a stamp and walk to the post office or the nearest post box to post that letter for it to then take, you know, a few days to get to Wood Lane for them mm-hmm. for someone to read it and for them to decide that it was going to be worthy of going on to a television programme. A television program which by the way runs for only six months of the year so there's an awful lot of things that have to come together before your grievance might have an opportunity to be publicized that's different from having your grievance heard which would take a similar amount of effort and patience to get yourself a pen a piece of paper an envelope and a stamp to write the letter to take it to the post office and send it directly to the organization who's caused you the issue
0: yeah i see what you're getting at of
1: course the thing that might not necessarily be clear to you when you do that the first time round is that you might not necessarily get the satisfaction you're looking for in fact you might not even get a reply um and how much do you want to keep pushing back on that front before you just go well sod it i'll just do this thing over there but there's there's a greater chance of like the latter at least being read and put in the bin so you know to to think right that's it i'm going to write to Esther anson and have a good old complaint about this and we'll get this thing sorted out it's incredibly rare but you've got to respect the amount of effort even small amount that goes into that compared to the piss and vinegar that's all over the place now where you can have a whinge about the bus driver on twitter while you're still on the bus
0: yeah and they can't do a thing about it because bus drivers aren't on twitter they're not allowed
1: and sometimes it's sort of passive it's out to anyone who's listening and other times you might have actually targeted the company by mentioning them within the within the body of the tweet it's almost too easy to do that now and i think it sort of almost changes the concept of the jobs worth as well because you don't allow yourself to have as much time to ruminate on the situation you might be more likely to call a wider group of people a jobs worth because the origination of the term seemed it wasn't just anybody it wasn't even low-level work necessarily but it was someone who had a modicum of authority who had very tight boundaries over what they controlled or the work that they did to go beyond those boundaries would be more than their jobs worth it's only one minute after um the last entry at the zoo surely you can let us in and there is an argument that someone could go okay it's only one minute after i'll let you through But there's also going to be people who've gone, yeah, well, I've been here before. And if you let one group of four people in at one minute after four o'clock in the afternoon, well, what about the people behind them and the people behind them? Oh, you just let them through. That seems like a real big issue if you're the family that either sees someone in front of them getting through or is making the argument that they can be allowed. But if it's last entry at four o'clock, it's last entry at four o'clock. Like I said about the traffic warden thing earlier, it's not that person in the ticket booth who's at fault, and I don't think in those sort of circumstances you can really blame anybody except yourself. There's no point arguing with, with the zoo that closes at 5 or 6pm, that last entry at 4 is unfair. There are going to be a whole bunch of reasons why that rule was in place. Some of it is to do with the fact that, you know, if you're going to come into the zoo, we want you to have a good time. And if we let someone come into the zoo and we close it straight away, well... They haven't had a good time. So at least mm. we can give them an hour and they can see, you know, the penguins. If that's all they can do within an hour, at least they feel like they've got some value out of their day. But there's, you know, there's, there's head count issues. There's health and safety issues, maybe. There's all mm. other sorts of things. That's the thing you've got to think about. It's like, well, when we turf everybody out of the turnstiles at the end of the day, that count has to match the amount of people we know who are in the park at four o'clock. If that doesn't work out, then we've got an issue where there might be someone still in the park. They may or may not be a threat, but they have to be accounted for. And for insurance purposes, etc. they can't be on site when we're closed. So there's all sorts of reasons why this happens. But of
0: course... Very practical reasons as well. Very,
1: very practical, very honest yeah. reasons. No one's trying to mess your day up here. No one's staring you in the face and calling you personally a twat. There are reasons and reasons that maybe you can't understand or reasons that even the person in the ticket office can't explain to you right now because they might have been briefed on it when they started their job six years ago, but they can't remember it now. It's just the process. You feel in that moment, you feel angered and you feel slighted because if only, you know, if only you could just let us, or if only I got here a minute before, it's frustration, it's a little bit of anger, and the only thing that's stopping you is essentially your equal someone that you feel like with a little bit of pushiness you could just beat them you could just win because it's only them it's only that one person
0: without ever really considering if when someone comes into your workplace and asks you to push the boundaries of what you're supposed to be able to doing you'd necessarily do it for them if they were just a stranger off the street sure yeah the term i think has been adopted because it's very dismissive and i'd Thinking about
1: it, that's what that's what I was sort of getting at a little bit earlier. Is that I think it's sort of because it's now really quick to (laughs) criticise. It's easy to just go, "Oh, what a job's worth." Well, I don't think really it applies on all of those fronts exactly. In the very beginning of what a job's worth was, it's like yeah it was quite actually it was quite a specific thing maybe it was more aligned with working in the public sector than in the private sector but you know there would have been places in the private sector too but it was a very specific type of person almost institutionalized in a way if you like mm.
0: The thing about that's life, I want to kind of circle back to the actual term itself, but the thing about that's life and that kind of model that makes me sort of more uncomfortable, again, is the lack of being able to relate to the people you're talking to. Now, okay, as with an awful lot of these things, like the an example you gave of the bus driver, well... One thing that has happened with social media is when people have behaved in bad ways, like if, say, the bus driver has done something dangerous or illegal or whatever, there have been situations where people have been caught doing stuff that they absolutely shouldn't have been doing. And in the case of That's Life, the argument for what they were doing, the thing that made it not just pointing fingers and stuff, was that they did sometimes because they were because it was on telly, because they had like the weight of the BBC behind them or whatever, they did in a lot of cases get help. But at the same time, I can't really get away from the fact that it's basically a bunch of a bunch of bloody elitist actors and stuff. No, it's (laughs) it's it's a bunch of broadcasters who, okay, at some point in the past, they might have done more down-to-earth jobs, but now they're broadcasters, they're working for the BBC, but their lives are, compared to an awful lot of people, everyone's got a boss, I appreciate that, but they have a lot more freedom than a lot of the people that they're getting in touch with and arguing with on behalf of the, on behalf of the consumer. It, it feels like these people in quite a privileged position... Okay, it's good that they're in a privileged position and they're trying to help people with consumer issues. What I don't particularly like about it is that they come up with this mocking, reductive, dismissive term and this mocking, reductive, dismissive tone to talk about and describe people who are doing a job where it is much more restrictive than being a person on that's life poking fun at this person. Yeah. People from a point of privilege mocking people who aren't in that same position and though it isn't strictly bullying because it's not personal per se it has created this kind of tone which i think persists today and it probably always existed but like it's like this idea that kind of we deserve better treatment than other people those people should roll over for us just because we are asking them to we're telling them Mm. to That's, I think, where I get that feeling that, like, I don't understand who all these people who have such huge expectations of what employees at other companies should do for them. And I can only assume they're all, like, dot-com millionaires who literally get to do whatever they want and give half of their salary away to charity. They're all rolling around on skateboards. And if someone comes up to them and says, oh, I don't like the way your company does this, they'll just go, oh, sure, dude, I'll fix it for you because they've got complete agency all the time. I have to assume all of the people who are complaining about this stuff are like that. Because otherwise, what the fuck? How would they feel if someone was doing the same thing to them? (laughs) I think
1: you bring up quite an interesting point there about the unfair balance of power that lies with a programme like That's Life. You know, who can look down their noses in this way? I think it would be fair to say that um, even today, but especially in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, that the BBC was an institutionalised organisation with people of good standing, of good blood of good class, who went to the right schools and the right universities and managed to craft themselves a happy little career in um, in an organisation that wouldn't sack them. They get to live in London, they get to work in London, they get to make very good, important television or radio or whatever, and they swim in different circles. And perhaps, um, this is obviously me imagining this, so I don't really have any evidence for it, so it, it's perhaps <laughs> as much of a reflection of where I stand but um, th- that they may well be thinking, well, thank God I never had to have a job like that, or thank God I will never be in a situation like that. It, it makes it easier for them to do the sneering, I guess. There wouldn't be much empathy there because they've, they may never have touched a situation like that. And so everything does seem strangely unfair or uncooperative, where perhaps in every other walk of their life there has always been cooperation. It does smack of bullying in a way. It's just like, well... Why can't you? It's only a very small effort. It won't challenge you. Why can't you do that? I'm, I'm only here. You could just do this, couldn't you, just for me? Whereas perhaps in any other walk of life, they probably would have got away with it. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. This is an awful lot of supposition now, but you're right. There is an unfair balance of power because by and large, the people who they will be criticising as being jobs worth are on the lower end of the pay scale of whatever organisation they work in anyway, who are just doing their job.
0: Actually, you know, as much as I can't imagine anyone ever saying it, there's a very good chance if that if someone did say to you, sorry, Gov, can't do it, it's more than my job's worth, what they could have very easily said to you is, no, you're not entitled to this. Who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> Initially on that show, we weren't talking about, that. Um, they weren't necessarily talking about people who were trying to get into places to to get anything that they weren't entitled to. They were talking about genuine consumer problems and stuff. But culturally, what we're left with now, and this isn't just from That's Life, it's just from the... the it probably sounds a bit ridiculous because, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, you two are great. You're, uh, you're really sticking it to a programme that was out, like, 30 years ago. <laughs> well done.
1: It hasn't been on air for almost 20 years now.
0: What I've specifically been left with from That's Life is... This is one way or another what roughly 70% of our uh, broadcast TV looks like now. The stuff that isn't drama, the stuff that isn't scripted an awful lot of it is why isn't this hotel better why is this restaurant so shit or even just shows like the one show that are basically that's life you know they're they're almost exactly the same thing i don't really watch these shows i'm guessing you watch even fewer of them than i do because when i say i don't really watch them what i kind of mean is i end up watching quite a lot of them (laughs) Um, (laughs) just just not intentionally they
1: happen to be on the tv and you happen to be in the room
0: I, i might have mentioned it before it's doorway tv it's tv that i walk into a room see it's on the tv uh, my instinct is to leave but what happens is i stand in the doorway and watch it instead <laughs> and it's kind of ridiculous for me to make the connection between the the unilevers thing and the uh, and these shows because I, I think they're different cultural things i think but certainly for us it's useful to to on that moment in time on on that show where suddenly we were invited suddenly the population was invited to i mean you made the interesting point earlier on about how like you could either send your letter to the actual organization that aggrieved you or you could send it to that's life now that's life might fix it for you but that wasn't really why you were doing it you were less likely to get a response from that's life than you were from the organization yeah at that point, you're not so much actually trying to fix the thing, you are trying to stand up and have people hear you. It's not showing off as such, but it is, it is more about having people see that you have noticed this injustice or whatever yeah. than it is about actually fixing it, because there are quicker ways to fix it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not a label that anyone seeks to own, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one goes to work thinking that they are a job's worth. If they do think that they're a job's worth, then there's probably an aspect of malicious compliance that's happening with them and their relationship to their colleagues and also their customers. And that is perhaps a dark side of them that needs to be removed. But you're not thinking that I'm going to make everybody's life more difficult. You know, I'm not going to do the very best for the customers or or for the people who I am responsible for or to. It's only a term that comes up and it's only a label that is given in the circumstances of someone feeling embittered and it's not even it's not even like it's it's a personal exchange it's not like i am wronged you are the person who has wronged me and i'm going to say to you you're a jobs worth because that's easy but it's also water ducks back in the way you're not ever going to tell that story once. I think this is this is kind of like what you were saying. If someone does you wrong and you feel there's been an injustice and they could have just made a little bit of an extra effort... That's the kind of story you are going to want to tell again and again to anybody who has ears. And if you could say it to someone who could make that change for you and to put that person who wronged you into an uncomfortable position, then you'd do it. And you'd call them a chopsworth and you'd belittle them and you'd feel like you'd won. But the trouble is with this stuff, it's all such petty victories. It's such an enormous waste of effort.
0: And it feeds poison into yeah. everybody's day. Nobody benefits from that. The person doesn't like being called it. You feel a bit triumphant, but it's the sort of triumphant that makes you an asshole, whether you realize it or not. It's like, well, I guess it's the case of a traffic warden. I imagine, well, and traffic wardens are an easy example, but like in most cases, like most customer service situations, you can scream and shout at those people all you want. It's not their job To just roll over and do whatever you want. It's their job to not respond to you in the way that, that, strictly speaking, you deserve to there. So there's no real victory in screaming in someone's face and them just having to sit there and put up with it strictly speaking they are doing exactly their job and they're doing a really good job if they don't just turn around and say i do not have to be spoken to like this this is a fucking society why don't you go away collect your thoughts put it in a letter and <laughs> post it somewhere do you know what i mean yeah. it's uh, unfortunately when someone recounts a story like that uh, i am the guy who is most likely to sort of this sounds self-aggrandizing it's not really a nice <laughs> it's not really a nice trait in me that but i'm the guy who's probably most likely to say well what is it you think the traffic warden owed you in that situation though did you know them were they your friend (laughs) had they ever met you before Or, or are you just another one of the hundreds of people they're going to have to potentially deal with on that day I'm sure there are people who do that job the way there are people in who do every job who get off on the authority. But probably not that many, because if you were really the sort of person who got off on authority, you probably wouldn't become a traffic warden.
1: I think there are a few people that get off on the authority and we sort of experience them and then apply their personality to everybody else in similar roles. Yeah. I think it's almost a cliche to refer to um, receptionists in doctor's surgeries as... As the little Hitlers,
0: as the ones. Oh God, I've done that as well. So I take almost everything I've said today back.
1: <laughs> um, there's a, a, a real perfect little case of a bad experience. You know, sometimes you can phone up and you're you're seeking an appointment, or you need either with your GP or practice nurse, or. Um, And you can get them on a good moment, you can get them on a bad moment. But you've got to think, these people actually have a a terrifically tough job because they're dealing with people face-to-face and they're dealing with people on the phone and they all need to see someone immediately. Yes, they're not medically trained to decide whether they are or aren't in greatest need, but they're the front line. They're the first person that you speak to. And no doubt they are under enormous pressure from the doctors in that surgery to get it right well why did you give this person uh, an, an emergency appointment they just had a tiny scratch and it's the receptionists who have to be that filter they're going to put up with an awful lot of shit
0: mm, the worst of society they have to deal with pretty
1: much and <laughs> they have to try and do that In as pleasant a manner as possible it's no wonder that sometimes they just find it real tough and they might be getting passive aggressive with you whether you deserved it or not you know and it's not right that it should happen to you you know on their bad day when really you just needed this thing solved (laughs) maybe we all just need to react to stuff better but we all have our weak moments Mm. So I mean, so again, I mean, it's a cliche, but it does exist and it is true. But like you said, it does require that little nugget of empathy to just understand what pressures they might be under. Oh, absolutely. Why they have to do something the way that they do something. It's not to deliberately mess with you. You need to fit within a structure that you wouldn't normally, you know, as a member of the public, as Joe Public, you wouldn't have to handle day in, day out. But this is, you know, you interface with it, you come in it at whatever angle you like, and it's down to them to filter you through the system in the correct way. Sometimes that might work, sometimes that might not work. That's like another perfect little cliche of of people who, and uh, you know, and some of them will, I think, they will feel more important because you know, oh yes, I helped keep this place together sort of an attitude, you know. Mm. And I very much doubt that that's going to be the attitude of someone who's only worked there a year but that's probably the attitude of someone who's worked there for 20 and is just waiting for their pension, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. you know, they're, they're kind of stuck here now maybe they're at the point where they sort of loathe their job and they loathe their existence and they're just waiting it out, but, you know they deserve to be treated with exactly the same amount of respect as anybody else. It's no wonder that sometimes on either side of that conversation you might not have your greatest moment
0: the second you mentioned doctors uh, receptionists i ha- i have to admit that i i have been guilty of being quite annoyed by them in the past and and i have i have thought all all of these very reductive things that we're thinking about i've even kind of maybe been guilty of the other thing that i uh, th- the other thing that that kind of bothers me about this behavior of calling other people out on how they're doing their jobs that we're talking about the way it is now not necessarily the way it was back when it was just Esther Anton and her bunch Mm. going on about it is whenever you're on the side of this argument where you're you're kind of trying to stick up for the people who work at a company who are getting in the neck for a decision that the company's made the thing you'll quite often hear is well you know they don't have to do that job this person, they're probably getting thousands of, if, say, people aren't responding to your emails quickly enough or you're not getting the res- you're not getting treated like the delicate and unique snowflake you think you're supposed to be treated like. <laughs> and you sort of say, well, you know, they're probably dealing with hundreds of calls a day. It's probably pretty difficult. They might be really busy. This, this is going to be a high-traffic time for them. And then the person will say, well, they should have a system for getting these things up to the top. And I'm like, well, maybe they do or maybe they don't. Maybe you're they don't prioritise the way, things the way you do. And, you know, they're probably having quite a hard day. I have seen people respond to that sort of situation by basically saying, I'm paraphrasing, because you can't quote all of them, because they all use different terms and stuff. Some of them don't even use English, but I don't understand those guys. Um, But basically, they'll sort of say... Well, you know, they don't have to do that job. If they don't like it, they could work for someone else. Or when someone works for a company that has done something a bit scummy, because every company does something a bit scummy at some point, you know, this guy doesn't have to work for Unilever. They don't have to work for Apple or Microsoft or any of these different places. Have you ever heard that sort of response? Well, you know, they deserve it. They kind of deserve this treatment because they decided to work for an evil corporation.
1: I don't know whether I've heard it, but I can certainly understand where it comes from. It comes from the same sort of
0: lack of empathy, but yeah, I can understand yeah, where it comes from. Which just makes me think, well, aren't you da <laughs> aren't you just great? You're so talented and skillful that you've basically been able to choose every fucking job and every fucking employee you've ever had yeah, yeah. from a checklist of you've, you've got to choose every single decision. And the second the company you worked for became a bit too corporate or whatever, you could just jump ship and go somewhere else into your ideal perfect job working for your ideal perfect place. It is very odd, and it's so far from my worldview. Oh, the other thing, and it's possible this is where this almost relating to the guy doing the job to a fault that I do, is for one summer I worked, I did telesales because I had to. It was between my first year and second year at university, and it was a hateful job, and I hated it. And the only thing I can really say that makes me feel slightly better about it is that I didn't make a single commission. It was for a timeshare company, and it was really scummy even at my uh, most idealistic i have never thought of my fellow people who worked there over that summer even the ones who are really really good at it i have never thought those guys are evil (laughs) whenever you talk about that sort of thing with anyone that's the point at which you really hear people's stories where they think they're at their most pithy and anti the man because people are really happy to tell you how they handle telesales calls That, yeah, this person called me up and I said, no, thank you and fuck you. Or, oh, and I, I said this very pithy thing that actually probably wasn't that pithy and they probably heard some variation of it hundreds and hundreds of times. But well done, you. Someone who is doing a job that you couldn't imagine doing in your life. And about maybe 1%, I was going to say 1% of every 100 people, maybe 1% of every 100 people who are doing that job actually likes doing it and is doing it because, you know, they thought one day, you know, what sort of job would I like to get into? Oh, I'd like to get into tele sales. And the rest of them are kind of disgusted with themselves before every call, disgusted with (laughs) themselves after every call. Well, maybe not disgusted because nobody can really live like that but these aren't jobs that people tend to do for a really long time
1: means to an end stuff
0: yeah and if someone has had to do it for a really long time it probably means their life isn't as great as yours i'm never impressed by those stories when people think they're so clever, there are ways to stop a call like that without taking someone's dignity away from them. And the truth is, you haven't really taken the dignity away from them because if they've been doing it for more than, like, ten calls, they've got a thick skin to that stuff anyway and you didn't really impact on them anyway.
1: As I said earlier, it's it's like that sort of petty little victory of feeling like your power was taken away from you, so you've got to take it away from them somehow. Mm. No one wins. You both end up with less power. But the mm. difference is, of course, is that no one did it to you deliberately, but you're doing it deliberately back, which really doesn't put you in the best light at all. And practically every sort of story that we've recounted this evening has, has always put the complainant in the worst light.
0: I, I think so.
1: That's not necessarily to say that every complaint is without merit
0: a lot of them are with merit that's the thing and it's just like you've got quite often a genuine grievance and you turn into an arsehole about it I understand why those calls are an invasion and I understand people getting angry and I think you get to be angry a couple of times before you go ex-directory or get rid of your landline you know what I mean it's sure Um, I I can understand anger and I can understand abrupt responses or just hanging up on someone. But once you're, like, actively taking the piss out of them or calling them names, you've kind of missed the point of why people do stuff like that. It isn't because they enjoy it. Except when you encounter someone who really does enjoy that job and is willing to go the extra mile to try and make a sale, I won't take the piss out of them. But you don't have to be nice to those guys, you know what I mean? I've had people, like, when they thought that it was only my wife in the house, two guys intrude over the doorstep. Because she didn't actually close it in their face, they pushed into the hallway and I found them there. You know, if I'm... And I know we feel differently about the charity guys in the middle of town, but there are some of those guys who... I
1: don't know if we feel that differently.
0: Oh, do we not? Okay. (laughs) Um, But if you're actively standing in the way of someone, which, you know, I don't think you're actually allowed to do and they clearly have made it clear they're not interested, and you still badger them, you're enjoying your job too much. My little pushback when I did telesales was I wasn't very good at it.
1: The victory on your front then is that you weren't very good at it, but you still got paid.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, my very small amount of salary. <laughs> it, was, it was beer money. That was I wasn't doing it to stick it to the man, though. I just really wasn't very good at selling timeshares. There was a point I think maybe was there a point when I even tried I don't know I, I don't I just I have been very good at sales working in retail I was pretty good at it but you can be in a retail
1: environment and you can sell stuff to people but it's within a more permissive environment and then yeah. there's that aspect of sales which is like the Glen Gary Glen Ross thing you've got to hunt them down you've got to nail them down you've got to make yeah. them spend very bizarre sort of relationship.
0: Always be closing.
1: I can't, I, I can't put my head in that space. I, personally, I can't understand where the joy comes from.
0: It is a little bit strange, and I don't think long-term it's the way capitalism works, sustainable model. When you're selling something to someone that they don't need, it only really makes them feel good for the duration of the time that they're buying it off you. It doesn't yes. bring any continued joy into their lives. Or if you're selling something to someone that they actually want, That's a good thing and it will keep them happy every time they look at it maybe. This is maybe another reason why I'm kind of down on this whole attitude... It might have been when I worked in a shop because one thing that happens when you work in a shop, probably any shop actually, but specifically one of those, like one that isn't a supermarket, one that has uh, unusual items on sale and stuff like that is the price is the price that's marked on there. There's been a a markup applied to it. I worked for a chain. You didn't really have any flexibility on the price of things. Very few days, but certainly never a week went by where someone that you had never seen before... (laughs) Didn't think that they somehow merited coming in and trying to haggle with you on the cost of things or trying to convince you that that your store had somehow let them down in some way so they were entitled to something more than just a straight refund on, on the price they paid on something. And the one thing you become really conscious of is, yeah, on balance, most people are nice, but... There are so many people out there who carry around that sense of entitlement, and most of them are just scam artists. So that idea that the customer is always right and the customer should always get what they want flies out the window a little bit, you know. Yeah,
1: this may well have been a conversation I I had with you while you were in that retail job, actually, but I always felt perhaps one of the worst things to happen in terms of retail was the fact that the phrase, the customer is always right, leaked into the public. Mm-hmm. Because in its heart, it is a phrase that makes sense. If you understand the context, work with the customer, satisfy the customer as best you can. Mm -hmm. Whereas once that leaked out into the public consciousness, from the customer's point of view, it just meant that I can get anything I want, however I want, whenever I want, because I'm the customer, which isn't the case at all. There are, yeah. plen- there are plenty of things. There are plenty of barriers in your way that means that actually, no, you're not right. Yeah, you know, one of those may well be. Well, the price is nine ninety nine, so nine ninety nine is what you're going to pay for it. But yeah, I always felt like that should have remained secret because. Once it goes out into the open and gets misinterpreted, it's going to be that blunt instrument that beats you on the head every time, you know, you have an exchange that isn't going particularly well. Like, well, I'm the customer. I demand yeah. satisfaction. It's like, I well, want to talk to your boss. Which is always the worst, isn't it? Because it's like you're telling them exactly what the boss would tell them. But because you're not in a significant enough position of power, someone else is going to have to repeat all the words you just said in a slightly different order.
0: I wonder if this is something that travels, because there are certain things in American retail culture and business culture that actually probably really work, but by the time we get to them, they're just management-speak bollocks that people who don't really understand them spout because they make them feel clever. (laughs) And in almost every training session you end up in, or um, when you're part of a big organization especially, or one thing I found when I worked in retail, whenever a new personnel manager came in, you'd get this battery of meetings you had to go to and new sort of policies or new uh, role-playing scenes you had to play out and all of that stuff. And understandably, everybody around me would always be like, well, this is just bollocks, this is stupid, what is this, this is a load of American claptrap when you looked at these ways of running teams or whatever that that people were talking about, if you had even a remotely sympathetic eye, you could see how these are exactly like the customer is always right thing you're talking about. They weren't supposed to be the text. They were supposed to be the subtext. And I've had managers who do this where they tell you during your appraisal or whatever, Oh, I want you to be doing this because uh, it's good for you to be motivated and they're not supposed to tell you that. They're supposed to you, they're supposed to get you to do the thing and that's supposed to motivate you. That's what their training was supposed to teach them how to do. But because they didn't understand that, they're showing you the trick at the same time as they're trying to play the trick on you and it just doesn't work.
1: Yeah, it's the equivalent of reading the script but reading the directions as part exactly, of the dialogue. Yeah.
0: And it's it's kind of that. It's like, "No, the the thinking behind this, we're blaming the Americans for this." And you know, they're to blame for a lot of things. We're blaming the american self-help people or the american management culture people um for this stuff we're hearing but if you were getting it firsthand from the person who came up with it who is running a company based on these principles and that company is doing really well it would probably make slightly more sense. Or if you started working there and this culture was just happening to you rather than you having it explained to you, it would probably make perfect sense. But no, you're getting it from somebody who read the book and now is selling their wares to your employer as a consultant but not really doing a very good job of it. That's exactly right. I think you're right about the customer is always right. I don't think the customer is ever supposed to hear that. It's just a way of tricking your employees into being a bit more customer-oriented. Like... When you hear someone say, have a nice day, in an English voice, I suspect that the way that was supposed to work was you were supposed to feel like you wanted them to have a nice day. Like when you're in a restaurant and the waitress comes round to you and asks in a sort of disinterested way, is everything right with your food? And you know that they're asking you because they are supposed to. Whereas maybe the first few people who did that really cared if the food was good because they're the person who owns the place and they, they want to make sure everyone's happy. These things don't translate. There, you're not supposed to see behind that particular curtain. I always think of it as my first my 1st telesales call. Actually, it wasn't my 1st telesales call, so I lied to you. You used to have these sheets torn out of the phone book that they brought round to you, but you had this script that suggested that they'd been selected. Mm, yeah. And then throughout the script, there were little questions that weren't delivered as questions that were there to work out if they were eligible for your offer. Because they hadn't been selected, you were just doing them in alphabetical order. But it was important. The people you were talking to were... married couple and that they'd be between two certain ages because too young meant they probably wouldn't have the funds or the stability to be able to continue paying for a timeshare and too old meant they wouldn't be much of an investment, they'd be dead soon. And there were lots of these things So, and and, and that's really creepy. It's also kind of clever because it's scripted like normal questions you'd ask someone. The first call I typed the number in, it started ringing, the person picked up the phone and I hung up because I completely panicked and freaked out. So that was my actual <laughs> tele sales call my second telly sales call a woman answered there was a noise in the background I didn't know if it was a tv or something else it was uh, you know there was obviously something going on in the background but I didn't really know what it was and she said hello I started going into my script and she let me mm-hmm. and then I got to the bit where I checked that there was a mister whatever her name was and ask the question about the age it kind of runs on this is about 10 or 15 seconds into the call which is quite a long time actually sure, yeah. when it's a complete stranger you're talking to and she went really quiet and then she said is this some sort of a joke because that wasn't on the script that wasn't one of the answers she was supposed to give me <laughs> i said um no it, it, it isn't a joke i just have to ask these questions and she said this is my husband's funeral and the noise i'd heard in the background was the wake well wow. The good thing about a first tele-sales call like that is it is literally uphill from there. I never had a worse call than that one.
1: When you made those calls, did you ever make a call to a number that just rang and rang until it went to an answer machine or no one picked it up?
0: This was a really long time ago, so I don't know if people really had answer machines, but there were lots of situations where no one picked them up and you just had to, I think you had to give them like 30 seconds or sure. something like that.
1: Well, there, there could be the occasional situation where someone didn't pick up because they were dead so that could be
0: worse i know that you know you're right that could be worse but the good thing is i'd never know and so ignorance is bliss but
1: maybe now you'll think about it differently. that every single time a phone wasn't picked up it was because you phoned a dead person
0: (laughs) brilliant no you're right uh the one thing i had never considered until just now because i really thought that was the most awful thing i'd ever done to (laughs) anyone probably is Strictly speaking, I didn't actually ruin her day. That was probably one of the least bad things she was having to deal with that day, so...
1: You probably gave her a nice little anecdote. She might not yeah. have felt like that at the time. But, you know, she's got that now. And you, yeah. And you've got to play a role in that.
0: Let's go with that. That's something like 20 years of guilt I've been carrying around, and it's just gone like that. Glad I could help. I have no idea what sort of a person I'm going to be now. That guilt might have literally been the only thing humanising me. <laughs> well watch this space i guess yeah yeah i guess (laughs) fuck knows what the next show is gonna be like (laughs) i'll be skyping you from prison
1: (laughs) oh the state of prisons eh letting people skype each other huh yeah speaking as a taxpayer
0: <laughs> I get the feeling if that were the case the slight outrage that people sometimes feel that you have to deal with on social networks might be the least of the social behaviours <laughs> I have a problem oh, I might surprise us all and become you know the king bitch or whatever it's called it's called a queen bee in ladies prisons I don't know what it's called in men's prisons the big dog I might be the big dog next time we talk <laughs> It is so hot here, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah,
1: I I find myself, at the end of a recording session, being gently glazed.
0: (laughs) Don't take this the wrong way, and it is literally (laughs) the first time I've ever done this, but I had to take my shirt off quite early, so so that whole prison thing at the end kind of hit me a little bit close to home. Because the rest of the conversation we were having, I felt quite neutral about being a hairy, topless man in here. But once we were talking about prison right there at the end, it seemed a bit too... (laughs) A bit too fitting. <laughs> A bit too real for you. I was picturing myself on the bunk, talking to you via Skype, in just my pants, <laughs> sitting on someone else's naked back, probably.
1: <laughs> yeah. With your uh, with your crew.
0: Yeah. My crew of other little hairy Greek dudes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be like their alpha. <laughs> They'd have to be really little for that to be the case, though, to be fair.
1: You'd have to be their alpha. Yeah. So you'd be their alpha papa.
0: <laughs> oh. God. <laughs>